The Guardian. Hello, my name's John Dennis. It's Thursday the 8th of April. Today, Labour and the Tories trade blows over their policies on national insurance. Does he believe they were deceived? The Conservative policies would put jobs at risk immediately, would put businesses at risk immediately and would put growth at risk immediately. Safety campaigners and cyclists criticised David Cameron for riding a bicycle without a helmet. Yeah, I should probably uh, adopt another policy on that. <laughs> and knock it on, on the head would probably not do any good for the next government. Another election, this time in Sri Lanka, the first since the Tamil Tiger rebels were crushed by the army. Nothing remained of the village from before. No houses, no fields, no farms, nothing. Nothing, nothing at all. In the war of the social networking websites, is it bye-bye Bebo? There was a time when any playground you went into in the UK, and particularly in Ireland where it was massive, it was the only site that mattered. A blow to already troubled relations between America and Afghanistan as President Hamid Karzai is accused of drug abuse. Some of the palace insiders uh, say that he has a certain fondness for uh, some of Afghanistan's most profitable exports. And how the Black Red Start is being lured back to our cities. Yes, there are flats of apartments around us and we're on top of their car park. First, our top story. The Tories have named another 30 business leaders who back their plans to halt Labour's planned rise in national insurance. At the last Prime Minister's questions before the general election, Gordon Brown rejected David Cameron's claim that Labour's planned 1% increase in national insurance will kill the economic recovery. Mr David Cameron, they were shouting out about national insurance contributions and this is a question about national insurance contributions. The Prime Minister has made the decision to introduce a jobs tax which will kill the recovery. Now this morning he said that business leaders who oppose this decision have been deceived. Is the Prime Minister really telling us that he knows more about job creation than business leaders who employ almost a million people in this country? Now, as far as national insurance is concerned, there is a choice. There is a clear choice. We, 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 we can put the national insurance up and therefore protect our schools, our hospitals and our policing. Or we can do what the Conservatives traditionally do, and that's put our hospitals, police and our health service at risk. This morning... This morning, the Prime Minister said these business leaders had been deceived. Since then, another 30 business leaders have come again and said, oh, they're right and they're wrong. And let me tell him, let me just read the Prime Minister what they're saying. Paul Walsh, the head of Diageo, on the Prime Minister's Business Council. No, not a Tory, one of his advisers. Well, he's probably a Tory now, so are half the country. Our head of business is Dan Roberts. He says the Conservatives claim the policy is now supported by 68 senior business figures who, between them, employ more than 850,000 people. The odd thing is that it's a it's a quite a narrow point. Only a few weeks ago, most of the business community was up in arms that um, not enough was being done to bring the deficit down. And now the Tories have very skillfully, but kind of oddly, managed to completely change the argument to the reverse and say that they should be um, cutting taxes faster. But it seems to be working politically. 
Is this actually a tax cut, though? Or it's, it's just what they're actually saying, the Tories, is that they're not going to implement all of this planned rise in national insurance. Is that the same as a tax cut? Well, um, not really, no. But, I mean, it amounts to the same thing. It's a point of principle, I suppose. The Tories want to demonstrate that they believe in a smaller state and they believe in, in um, having people spend more of their own money rather than the government. Um, the uh, the difficulty for Labour is that until now they were on quite a, their message was quite positive. Their message was don't go around ruining the recovery. Um, the state is the only thing keeping Britain on, on its feet at the moment. And the Tories look like the nasty party because the Tories are saying we want to cut the deficit fast and that's the only, you know, we should be prudent and um, fiscally responsible. But now, now that on a very crude level, the Tories seem to be throwing sweeties around and, and, and they're being applauded by some some business leaders and um, and and that seems to be sort of dominating the debate. I, I don't think the questions about the deficit and how we rebalance the economy have gone away. They're just kind of getting drowned out at the moment. Have Labour been able to wheel out any names from the world of business who support their stance on national insurance? Not so far, no. Um, we've been doing a bit of ringing around to see what people say and, and um, generally the best I think Labour is getting is a sort of dignified silence from some of its former um, fans in the city and business community. No, I think realistically, business leaders never say they want higher taxes. Um, it's just not what business lobbying does. And more cynically, you could argue that the business community tends to keep its head down on political matters until it senses a winner. And when it thinks there's a change of government, it sucks up to the new government. So I think these forces are playing against Labour at the moment. Are the Tories right to say that national insurance is a tax on jobs? I mean, all taxes, you could argue, um, are, are disincentives to, um, to employ people or, or, or to invest. Um, national insurance, I suppose, has a particular um, uh, feature to it, which is that it's paid by both employees and employers, that they are right to argue to that extent that, um, that it has a particular um, penalties. But then other taxes also have problems. I mean, VAT is a very regressive tax, which means it, it hurts poor people disproportionately more. I was talking to an, um, a, an engineering company today who was saying that actually we're not that bothered about national insurance, we're more worried about our capital allowances because actually, you know, we we have a relatively small workforce these days, but our investment depends on our being able to buy more machinery and the tourist plans for capital allowances will hit that. So frankly, wherever you go, there are, there are downsides to taxation. You know, jobs is clearly a feature of the, the political debate at the moment, but getting the economy going more generally is also the biggest way of getting the employment market moving. Dan Roberts, and there's more on the election later in today's show. Should David Cameron wear a helmet when he rides his bicycle? A former United Nations diplomat has questioned the mental stability of the president of Afghanistan. Peter Galbraith used to be the UN's deputy special representative in Kabul. Last week, Hamid Karzai accused Galbraith of being behind massive fraud during last year's presidential election. Now, in an interview on MSNBC television, Galbraith says Karzai has a drug problem. This continued tirade uh, raises questions about his mental stability. And frankly, uh, this has been something that uh, has been of concern to diplomats in Kabul. He's known Wait, what do you to be mean by that? Emotional. Well, uh, he, he's, he's prone to tirades. Uh, he, he can be, be very emotional, act impulsively. In fact, uh, some of the palace insiders uh, say that he has a certain fondness for uh, some of Afghanistan's most profitable exports. 
Well, wait a minute. Let's be, if you're going to make that allegation, let's be explicit about so, it. So you're saying he's got an issue, he's got his own uh, substance abuse problem? There, there, are, uh, there are reports uh, to that effect, but whatever the cause is... Is there any truth to Peter Galbraith's comments? The Guardian's correspondent in Kabul is John Boone. President's spokesman has denied this and denounced Peter Galbraith as a liar. The, his accusation does reflect some rumours that have been quite commonplace in Kabul for quite a long time. But hitherto, they've only been rumours, both that... Uh, Mr Karzai is a user of illegal drugs and also this question about his mental stability that Peter Galbraith also talked about. That's been a, a long-standing uh, rumour in Kabul that the president after so long in office is not in the best mental health but again we just don't know the truth of those allegations. Extraordinarily undiplomatic language. Well, I think it shows the poisonous nature of the row between these two men. Peter Galbraith was essentially pushed out of the country back last year during the great disputes about the fraud-tainted presidential election last summer when the palace essentially said, this man, Galbraith, has to leave town. And then last week, of course, President Karzai singled out Peter Galbraith as one of the international actors who he said was responsible for the corruption and fraud surrounding the presidential poll last year. So one can perhaps see why Peter Galbraith might want to hit back. Galbraith has also been talking really for the last few months about his own view that the US counterinsurgency strategy cannot work in Afghanistan as long as the country is led by an unreliable partner. And I think this is a continuation of his argument, albeit with some eye-catching new allegations. And will the scheduled meeting between Karzai and Barack Obama in Washington go ahead next month? Well, yesterday the White House spokesman said that that would be up for review depending on what else President Karzai says and so far he hasn't said anything and in fact his government has made one announcement which the international community have wanted to see for a long time and that was that the chairman and deputy of the Independent Election Commission will be standing down and will not be uh, running the next set of elections which are parliamentary elections in September. That was a, a key demand and the fact that Mr. Karzai has now acquiesced to this, even though it's taken four days of extremely acrimonious arguing about it. It has now finally happened, and that may well allow the United States to say, we've got what we asked for, and the meeting at the White House is back on. However, the next thing to watch out for is who he appoints instead of these men who will now not be uh, on, on the board of the Independent Election Commission anymore, if he does pick a candidate who seems to be too close to uh, President Karzai and is not of the uh, of sufficient calibre to run a free and fair election in September, then that could entirely change the White House's view on things again. John Boone. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. The social networking site Bebo may be closed or sold off by its owner. 
AOL bought Bebo for $850 million two years ago, but now it says it can't afford to carry on funding the service. In our Media Talk podcast, reporter Jemima Kish says industry analysts aren't surprised. AOL paid a full whack for Bebo right at the top of the social networking boom. So it was $850 million and it was in cash as well. People said that was pretty ouchy, uh, even at the time, and now it looks like it was quite ridiculous, really. It is really a kid's thing. Um, it was really, really popular with younger teenagers, sort of 13 to 16-year-olds, and there was a time when um, any playground you went into in the UK, and particularly in Ireland, where it was massive, it was the only site that mattered. And that was also before the days when Facebook had opened its doors beyond the US university network. The problem was that AOL didn't give Bebo the funding it needed. It had been a start-up until AOL bought it, and they'd always winged it, basically. They needed a huge cash injection. Um, firstly, well, mostly for engineers, actually. They needed enough engineers to keep the site running properly, and then they need all the extra engineers to do all the amazing fancy stuff that comes, um, that comes after that. And they didn't have either of that. I think there was one point where Bebo had 40 engineers and Facebook had 2,000. So Bebo's fallen way out of favour. Uh, MySpace used to be used to be very cool. Is there um, a possibility that Mr Murdoch's favourite social networking site might might fall the way of, uh, of Bebo too? I think most people are in general agreement that MySpace's days have passed. I think that's the nicest possible way that I can put that. Um, again, it comes down not so much to what they've done wrong although there are very many things they've done wrong. It comes down to technology, and that's where Facebook has the edge every time. And there are key things that Facebook has done that have made it very successful. Um, one of them is is open up um, a kind of backdoor to their site, if you like, through things like Facebook Connect, which enables them to link to lots of other networks around the world, which encourages growth. Is there any benefit in another tech company buying it and inheriting the 12, 13 million uh, users or, or should someone, is someone better off starting from scratch? It's really unlikely um, that anyone's going to buy it. Aside from anything else, it costs quite a lot to run that site because it still has enough users with enough video and all the rest on there that the, the running costs are quite high. Is there a real strategic advantage for somebody in buying that site? I'm not sure there is. Jemima Kish speaking to Ben Green, and you can listen to our Media Talk podcast at guardian.co.uk slash media. Also on the website today, The Guardian's editor, Alan Rusbridger, road tests the Apple iPad. I was incredibly excited by the beauty of it when I unwrapped it, and um, it's got that wow factor that all um, Mac products have. And then I went through a sort of lull after about 10 minutes. I, I sort of got a bit bored with it, and I couldn't really work out what to do with it. It feels like an interim piece of data. I know all technology is in interim these days, but it, it really does feel like a stepping stone to something else, but I think it's probably quite a significant stepping stone. Alan Rusbridger, and you can watch a film of the editor and his iPad at guardian.co.uk slash video. Voters go to the polls in Sri Lanka today. Our South Asia correspondent Jason Burke reports. 15 million Sri Lankans of all ethnicities and religions go to the polls today to elect a new parliament. Few doubt the result. The party of the recently re-elected President Mahinda Rajapaksa is set to get a huge majority. Rajapaksa says that his countrymen are all children of the same mother. Last week I drove through northern Sri Lanka along the former front line between what was the government's territory and the enclave run by the Tamil Tiger separatists. The inhabitants of Paranatakal village are from Sri Lanka's Tamil minority. 
Thirteen years ago, they fled from fierce fighting and have only recently returned home. Life is tough. Many have come straight from refugee camps. Many have lost family members. They live in mud-walled, tin-roofed huts in astonishing heat. I spoke to 65-year-old Alusipalai Joseph about returning to the village and the coming election. His desire is uh, he don't want to displace again. He would like to stay in this village continually. So nothing remained of the village from before. No houses, no fields, no farms, nothing. Ninge verekulla inda gramathile ungalku veedugal irukkalla thottangal apdi ondum illa. Ondum illa, ondum illa. Oru kai vachu oru venam illa, ondum illa. Nothing, nothing at all. Not far away is another village, Makagonga Skade, where the population of Sinhala Buddhists. Many inhabitants here also fled after massacres over 20 years ago. Now they too are coming back. These are Rajapaksa core voters. I asked them why the president was so popular. It's not just because he, in their eyes, won the war. They finished the war, then they gave it to the electricity. He's brought electricity Electricity as well. And for this uh, developing, for these uh, uh, roads and everything. In Paranatakal, I had come across two political workers out hunting votes, proof that democracy, however flawed, survives in even the most unfriendly environments. When you've been canvassing, when you've been campaigning over the last weeks, have you had any problems, any trouble at all? Everyone in both villages said they were going to vote. The Tamils for the Tamil opposition parties, the Sinhalese for the government. The poll has so far gone off without major problems. But no one doubts the divisions that remain and the wounds that are still to heal. Jason Burke reporting. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. Now, here's Martin Wainwright with news of a scheme to attract a bird called the Black Red Start back to Britain's towns and cities. I'm in um, the UK capital, possibly the world capital of Green Roofs, which is Sheffield in Yorkshire. And I'm with Jeff Sorrell, who's the project manager of the Green Roof Centre at the University of uh, Sheffield, who's just about to take us on a safari of green roofs. They do several jobs, um, encouraging wildlife in. Obviously, if you bring green space into the city, then with that will come a certain level of wildlife. So you get birds, insects, and various other things that will support the local environment in that way. But what it also does is the plants themselves do a thing called evapotranspiration, which is the transfer of water into the atmosphere and that's like your skin sweating. So they actually clean the air, they also clean the water that passes through them and they have a cooling effect on the building below and the air above. So here we are, it's our first garden um, and I'm with a couple of um, research 
staff from the university. F first of all, Jörg, originally from uh, Berlin and then Stuttgart in Germany, which is famous for its green roofs. And, and I just wanted to ask you about the ecology. What, what sort of life will have found its way up here? Basically, birds, uh, butterflies and smaller insects, then apparently they have to fly to the roof. And it's very important that you have closely connected uh, spaces where there is an interchange. And so the more green roofs there are and the closer in proximity they are, you increase the population of the whole wildlife in the city. Because they can travel from one to the exactly. next. Exactly, exactly. So it's an all interconnected uh, uh, living space, basically, habitat. From guardian.co.uk, this is Guardian Daily. Controversy as David Cameron is pictured riding a bicycle without a helmet. Headway, the Brain Injury Association, said it was deeply disappointed in the Tory leader. Brain injury can happen at any moment. All it takes is just one fall and you'll regret it for the rest of your life. I'm outside cycle surgery on Pentonville Road, just round the corner from the Guardian's headquarters in King's Cross, and try and find out what some cyclists think. Sets a bad precedent, I think. Where I live on the Essex Road, you see people have been knocked off their bikes all the time, and I think if they're riding without helmets, that can do significantly more damage than if you were not riding with a helmet. You're, you're busy f fixing a customer's bike there. Um, I mean, how important do you think it is to wear a cycle helmet in London? This people that they don't use the safety gear, I don't want to say bad, but they're stupid. Yeah, I should probably uh, adopt another policy on that. And not going on, on the head would probably not do any good for the next government. Presumably there are occasions when, uh, you know, it's okay not to wear a helmet. I mean, he's going to be seen on the telly, he probably needs to keep his hair in order. I mean, uh, do you not have any sympathy for him? I mean, that's why I thought he's doing that. He just doesn't really want to ruin his hair at the end of the day. That's why I thought he's looking at. He doesn't want to ruin his image. But at the end of the day, I think safety comes first and he should be um, promoting that. Would you go out in London traffic without a cycle helmet? Definitely not. Thanks very much. Okay, cheers. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.